can't turn that on until I walk past that little microphone over there, because if I do, bad things happen. <laughs> for you guys, I mean, it's okay up here, but it's, it's bad for your, your ears, so, so I want to be careful with that. Um, good morning. Good morning. Super excited, especially after last night. Uh, what an encouraging time together uh, with a, a group of men from our church. And so, men, if you weren't able to be there, um, hopefully the next time around you will. Hopefully in the next week or so, we'll have the next date set uh, for you to come and join us um, to be a part of that. Um, God has definitely challenged us. And uh, one of the only ways that this is going to happen is if uh, our men step up and uh, fill the role uh, that, the men is that the men are supposed to, to fulfill within the church of God. And so uh, we gotta, gotta be conscious about that. We gotta be intentional about that as, as we move forward. Uh, we're nearing the end of, of the book of Luke. Uh, hard to believe this is actually week number 39 um, in Luke. We started at about this time last year, right after uh, um, Back to Church Sunday, which is coming up here in September. We'll start mentioning that next week, um, but we're getting there. We're nearing the end of the teachings of Jesus. If you're just joining us, then you, you didn't, wouldn't know how we did this. We did it a little differently. Uh, we started with just the beginning of, of Luke and the birth of Jesus. We talked about John the Baptist and their interactions and, and kind of took those through kind of an ending. Then we went back and back to the beginning of Luke and we started with the miracles of Jesus. And we went through all of the miracles of Jesus and just taught on the miracles of Jesus. And now we've gone back again to the beginning and we've gone through all the teachings of Jesus in light of the miracles and how those sometimes interacted with one another. We're almost done with the teachings. And then we got one last little tiny segment of just a couple weeks at the end of Luke because Jesus very specifically talks about some end times things in the book of Luke. And so we're going to pull those out and just talk about those in the context of the teachings uh, that he's teaching in. And so um, it's been fun to do it this way. It's been challenging, sure, on my end to do it this way, but I've enjoyed it. And I hope that, that you have as well. It's uh, kind of crazy. And then uh, some of us will be gone for a week on September 25th. Uh, we'll be in Poland um, serving. There are uh, seven folks confirmed going right now um, that we've purchased tickets for, and there's one still waiting on his passport. And he's called them and called them and called them. So would you pray for Devin's passport? Seriously. Pray for Devin's passport. You might not even know Devin. He's right here just a moment ago. Pray for Devin's passport, um, for him to get word that it's actually in process and, and working. So um, we're excited. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we open his word, shall we? Father God, uh, what a glorious morning it is to gather in your house to be here, and what a privilege and honor it is to open your word. Father, to literally read and learn exactly what Jesus said. And did. How incredibly blessed we are to have this opportunity. I think because the scriptures have always been there, we take them for granted. Father, humanly speaking, there's zero chance that this book should even exist. And yet here we are, 2,000 years later, studying the very words and actions of your son. May you open our hearts, our minds to what you would have us here today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're in Luke chapter 20. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we're in Luke chapter 20. Bibles, tablets, actual, uh, actual physical Bibles, whatever. There's Bibles underneath the seats there in front of you. Jesus' teachings today are very specifically directed at religious leaders. These religious leaders who are trying to catch him. We'll have one more scene, I believe, next week with some interaction with the religious leaders, and then they just completely 
quit. Um, here's the thing. Very soon, they are. They're going to give up on trying to trap Jesus in his words, trying to trick him into saying something that they would like him to say. Uh, they can't do it. It can't be done. And they realize that. So they result to just lying about him. It's what people do. Uh, when the truth doesn't work, they, they just start lying about people. So this ends up working quite well for them. If, if you know the story of Jesus, you know this leads to his arrest and, and trial and execution ultimately. But to fully understand these teachings, one of the things that we've got to do is we've got to remember when he's teaching these specific topics, okay? These, we just finished up the, the last part of, of chapter 19, okay? That's what we did last week. Now, we skipped some text to get to chapter 20. And so just to give you a heads up and remind you, Jesus has left Jericho. Now he's heading to Jerusalem specifically. It was thought either Sunday, could have possibly been Monday. Don't let that mess with you too much. Palm Sunday, Jesus comes into Jerusalem in that triumphant injury. He arrives at that large group of people shouting, Hosanna, God, save us, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we went through those passages just before Easter, having to do with the Easter story. So if you weren't here and you want to hear those, April 10th, you can get on our webpage, our YouTube page. You can go to April 10th and you'll hear the discussion of those specific texts, if, you, if, you, if you'd like to. That's completely up to you. We'll, we'll notice, though, because there'll be extra hits on that week. Like, hey, look, somebody went back. So that's kind of cool. If you're willing to do that, um, we, we do track those because it's fun to, to see how God is doing that. Either way, that evening, he eventually arrives in Jerusalem. He goes to the temple that first evening, and he just kind of looks around. He doesn't do anything that first evening. He looks around, and he sees the corruption. He sees the sin all around him. And then he leaves and he goes to nearby Bethany, he leaves the town of Jerusalem, he stays with his good friend Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And the next day, he comes back once again to the temple. This is the day that he comes and he drives out the money changers and kicks all those people out. He's angry because of what his father's house has been turned into. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. Instead, it's this den of robbers. It was housing these criminal enterprises, literally robbing the people of God. This was disturbing to Jesus after that cleansing, Matthew tells us that he still stayed in the temple. So he didn't like do that and leave. He stayed after everything had cleared out. And it says he began healing people. The blind and the lame were there. And they said there were children watching this happen. And as the children watched, they echoed that same call from the day before, Hosanna, son of David. And it says in Matthew that the chief priests and scribes were furious and offended at what these children were saying to Jesus. Now, remember, Jesus told us a couple weeks ago, we must come to him like children. See, they get it, and the adults don't. Not a big shocker there. He once again leaves town, spends the night in Bethany. If you ever wondered why he did that, there's a very specific reason. He's protecting his purpose. Jerusalem, dangerous, big city. Lots of people had gathered for the Passover feast. Nighttime comes, bad things could happen. So he leaves and retreats to a smaller suburb, if you will, they arrive probably to Tuesday, and that's where the text from today comes in. They begin questioning Jesus about his authority. Now, I get it. I completely understand why those leaders might be a little unhappy with the guy that has just came in and ruined, for the second time, their criminal enterprise that they have working in the temple. They're making a great deal of profit. Things are going really well, but that really wasn't the only reason they hated him. Probably the biggest reason that they hated this guy was the authority that Jesus claimed to have. It's really hard, I think, for us to understand um, what this looks like in, in our society 
But their religious society was based on authority and the steps that you must go through to achieve that authority or that position of power. Maybe the closest thing in our context might be like politics. If you were to skip from being an absolute nobody to to being some really big wig in politics, everybody in politics already would hate you because you didn't go through all the steps you had to go through to achieve that power. That might be the closest thing that we have. The word used here for power is important for us to understand. There's two different Greek words that are used for power primarily in the New Testament. The first one, dunamis, is translated power, and it's the word we get the word dynamite from. So you understand that kind of power, right? Explosive power, ability to do something especially big. The other word, the one used in this text, is exousia. Exousia is, is the word, the authority that appears here three different times, and it's the right to do something. So to have all the authority then means to have all the power and the right to do anything and everything that one wills to do. So Jesus has the ability to do whatever he wants. He has the right to do whatever he wants with whomever he wants, whenever he wants. He has all authority. He has both the dunamis and the exousia. He has the power and he has the permission. Why? Well, because he's God. That's why. But where did he get his authority? That's their problem. Because in Jesus' ministry, you'll never find a text where Jesus asks permission to do anything. He just does. Why? Well, there was no one higher to ask. Sure, he could ask God, but he doesn't need to. And he tells us that he does everything that his father tells him to do. This wasn't how it worked for the Jews. They had to seek permission. They had to gain authority and power. The religious leaders likely even wore headdresses that honored, paid tribute to the person that taught them, the person that they received their power and their authority from. Jesus didn't do any of that, so they want to know. Who gave you permission? Most recently, who gave you permission to come in here and mess up the temple? That's not okay. But beyond that, who gave you permission to teach with such authority? Everyone recognized that when Jesus spoke, he spoke as one with authority. No one had ever spoken this way before. See, because when you are the word and you speak the word, it comes off a little differently than other people just reading the word. Who gave him a permission to have all these disciples? That wasn't okay to have all these followers. And about those healings, none of which they ever questioned, by the way. They all agreed in the end that they were legit. (laughs) Who gave you the power to do that? Because we can't do that. That's not fair. That's not right. That's not how we do things. You got to go through us. We are God's appointed representatives here. Don't you understand that we're the only one that could authorize you to do such things? (laughs) And so we get to the interaction of today. Verse one of chapter 20. One day, Jesus was teaching in the temple, the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news. The chief priests, the teachers of the law came together with the elders. This is a big old group of people. And they said, tell us by what authority are you doing these things? They said, who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, well, okay, I'll also ask you a question. Tell me this. John's baptism, was it from heaven? Or was it from humid origin? They turn, huddle up. They begin discussing amongst themselves. Well, now, if we say from heaven, then Jesus, of course, is going to ask us, well, if it's from heaven, why didn't you believe in him? But if we say it's of human origin, then um, it's quite likely the people will kill us because they were persuaded that John was actually a prophet. So they gave him the wonderful answer, ah, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, okay. And neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. 
Now, you've got to understand, this is everybody. Everybody but the Sadducees, they'll be in next week, so don't worry. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, together with the elders, this is everybody. All the people controlling the Jewish system, running the Jewish people, they are throwing the kitchen sink at Jesus. This is it. Everything they got, they're throwing it at him. They're desperate to trap him in his words. They want Jesus to say, oh, well, my authority comes from God, of course. Then they think, well, then we could point to him and say, hey, that's blasphemy. Now, the funny thing about that charge is it would also be incorrect because blasphemy, of course, would be claiming to be God when you're not, and he is, so that wouldn't really hold water either. Jesus knows their plan as he knows ours. He senses their hostility, and he knows exactly how to trap them in their own words. So instead of answering the questions, he asks them this question about John the Baptist, specifically his baptism. Was it from heaven or was it from humans? Now, Please note, Jesus is not avoiding the question. This was not an avoidance technique to, to steer him off the subject or anything like that. Jesus knows that if they tell him the correct answer to the question, then they in turn will answer their own question as well. You see, the elders, the teachers, and the chief priests, these people went out to see John the Baptist. They were intrigued. They were curious about who he was. But unlike the people, they did not submit themselves to the baptism of John. Why? Well, to do so would be to acknowledge that John had been sent from heaven. No, I can't do that. And if he really was that prophet and they submitted to baptism, then they are indicating that they, the religious leaders, were outside of the covenant of God themselves. Oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 they couldn't do that. They're righteous. So how do they answer? Well, they, they want to say that the baptism of John is from man. That's, that's really their answer to the question. But they know if they did that, they would likely be stoned because they, people really thought that John was a prophet. However, if the leaders admit that John was from God, then Jesus is correct. Um, they definitely would have said, hey, and then if he was from God, why didn't you listen? Why didn't you believe who he was? There's zero chance they could win this argument. They can't tell the truth no matter what they thought, actually. So they cop out and they give a junior high answer and say, uh, I don't know. And they just stand there looking at Jesus. You can just imagine them going, mm, yeah, got us. I, I don't know. So much for their roles. Remember their roles in society. They are the observers. They are the ones that observe all the truth and answer all the questions, supposed to have all the answers for their religious faith. And here they are going, I don't know. <laughs> Uh-oh, they've set themselves up there to fail. So Jesus says, okay. Okay, I, I thought you guys would know that one. It was kind of an easy one, so I guess since you can't answer my question, really no need for me to answer your question, because here's the thing. I've already given you all the information you could ever need to make a decision in this moment, and uh, you refuse to, so I'm out. At this point, there's no need for me to give you any more information. You see, Jesus has always had the authority since before the beginning of creation. For all eternity past, Jesus has had this authority. John 1.1 1, 1 reminds us of this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word, and he was with God in the beginning. I love this part. Through him, all things were made. So when your kids ask you, well, who created Jesus? No one. Jesus created that's where it began. Nothing was before that other than Jesus. It's a wonderful thing. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
So at this point in his ministry, all the powers are lining up against Jesus. This is just a couple days before he will be put on trial before these same religious leaders. They will seize control. They will try to take away the authority that Jesus genuinely possesses. In the same way, the religious leaders, the teachers, the elders all come together and unite against Christ. You do need to know this, that one day the world, as we know it, will unite against Jesus Christ. All of the major religions of the world will suddenly be in unison in one thing, and that will be against our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And any religion that's false, any religion that's not consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ, those that have perverted the gospel into teaching some new thing, some modern Jesus that we approve of in our modern society, all of these will somehow, someway, miraculously all unite against Jesus and against the true believers and the true church and the members of the faith. I challenge you to look around and see if maybe some of those signs are appearing even now. How are we to respond to that as individuals? How are we to respond to that as the church? Right now, we're preparing. We're growing deeper. We've journeyed through Luke. We've digested some very difficult, challenging teachings. And right now, we're being challenged to rise up right here where God has planted us and to reach out to as many people in this area as we possibly can because there is a world in need, and it starts right here across the street. What's really awesome with what God is creating here is we have family in nearly every single small town around Clay County, and some of you out in the middle of absolutely nowhere. We know that too. We have people from Putnam County that are here every week. We have people from Terre Haute here every week. We have people from down Sullivan every week. He's spreading us out all over to do his work. This is such an incredible opportunity. Last week, we talked about those minas that the king gave out to those servants, and then he expected them to be doing his business. He has given all of us, all of us believers, one of those minas. What are we doing with it? Now, Jesus doesn't give them much time here. There's really very little transition. They don't have time to run away with their tails between their legs or anything like that. And we know that because at the end of this parable, Jesus says, uh, those folks were really unhappy I'm sure those religious leaders were listening to what Jesus immediately followed uh, with. And and if their hair wasn't on fire yet, it will be when he's done. This parable literally tells the story of the entire Jewish existence. And it shares the events that are about to take place with Jesus. Verse 9. Jesus went on to tell them this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and then he went away for a long time. Now, there's nothing unusual about that. People still do that today. People own land, they rent it to farmers, do they not? Nothing unusual about that. The man wasn't physically present, observing the crops grow. He left the renters in charge. Now, Matthew's account of this exact same story, at the exact same time in Jesus' ministry, shares with us some other details, starting with the fact that the landowner didn't just give him the land. No, the landowner actually really prepared the land. He wanted this land to be successful. He wanted these renters to be successful. It says he put a wall around it to protect it. He dug a wine press. He even built a watchtower. So the owner went to extra length to make sure that this would be a successful piece of property for those renters. The tenants had everything they needed to potentially succeed in this moment. Verse 10, at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 11, he sent another servant 
But that one they also beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. Verse 12, he sent a third and they wounded him and threw him out. This landowner was being more than patient with these renters. He sent an authorized representative back to check on things, to bring back some of the fruit of the harvest, if you will. This all would have been in the contract with the renters. They would have been expecting his visit. The owner would have only been collecting a part of what was actually due to him. But Jesus says the servant was rejected, even beaten. Now, for those listening in the crowd, this would have been shocking. Why on earth would they do that? That doesn't make any sense. This was wrong. This was wicked, ungrateful, even illegal, obviously. The people listening would have been outraged at this behavior. But then the owner sent another and got the same response, and then the third and got the same response. Matthew records even more details that Jesus said. He said some of the servants were killed, some of them taken outside of the vineyard walls and stoned to death. The people listening would have been incredibly upset at this story. The landowner being more than patient, why would he keep doing this? Why would he keep sending people? Why wouldn't he just go in and kick their butts? Just kick them out, kill them, get rid of them, destroy them completely. Everyone listening would have been expecting vengeance and outrage on behalf of the landowner. But what did they witness? They witnessed mercy. He's giving these tenants every opportunity to do what was right and honestly what they agreed to do in the first place. Now, as everyone's listening, it's thought that probably the religious leaders were beginning to catch on to Jesus' story. But he goes on. Anyway, verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? Now, we often read these stories all together. I want to pause there because I really think Jesus would have. He told them all of this, and he looked at the crowd, and the the landowner's looking at him like, well, what do I do? And maybe you hear the shouts of the people as to what he should do next, right? You hear the people crying out, what would you do if given that question? How would you answer it if it was your property you were renting out, and you sent people to go check on it, or you're building that you're building, and you sent your foreman to go check on it, and they beat him up and kicked him out? What would you do, right? Well, then Jesus shocks everybody and says, well, I'll send my son. I'll send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. The crowd would have looked at Jesus and said, what? That's stupid. What are you, you saw how he treated everybody else. Why on earth would they treat him any differently? This was not what they thought the landowner should do in any way. He should attack with vengeance, an eye for an eye, as we love to say. But that's not our God. He decided to give them one more try. But when the tenants saw him, the son, they talked over the matter. You've got to understand this. The son never had a chance. As soon as they saw him approaching, they recognized him, and they began to concoct a plan to get rid of him. They didn't care what he had to say. They were conspiring, plotting against him. As soon as they realized who it was, they said, there's the heir. Let's kill him, and then the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. They they did what? Again, some of you might have heard this story a dozen times from Scripture, so it's very hard to hear it for the first time. But if you're hearing this for the first time, to hear this story of a landowner who rented out his property and the property renters killed his son, imagine the anger of the crowd at the time. They would have been outraged. They would have been asking, like, who are these tenants? We'll go get them. Probably by this point in time, they forgot it's a fake story. Kind of. And they want to go. Like, let's go. Where the, Jesus, we'll just take care of that, 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 those tenants. We'll, we'll get them out of there for you. How could they be so evil? 
Now, I want to make sure that the end of this parable is perfectly clear because I'll be very honest. When you read it in Luke, there's something missing. And it kind of makes you scratch your head like, "Mm, okay. And probably we all just read on and kept going like, oh, not a big deal. But if you compare it with the text in Matthew, it fully explains everything. So the language of Luke makes more sense. It says that Jesus, after this part of the story, he questions the people. Jesus asks the people, what then will the landowner of the vineyard do? Verse 16, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Matthew says it this way. He, Jesus, the landowner, will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Now, this is the response of the people to Jesus' question. And that can get a little confusing in Luke. What do you think the landowner will do? This is how the people respond. He's going to come back and kick them out, probably kill them, eliminate them completely. And then Jesus goes on. He says, yeah, yeah, you're right. As a matter of fact, they will be destroyed. And a new people will be given the land, the, the opportunity to inhabit this land. This is right. You're right, guys. This is what should happen. They were given every chance they possibly could be given, and they refused to do what was right. In the end, everyone was in agreement, right? Actually, no. The people changed their minds. That's shocking, isn't it? That people, we people would change who? No. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid, or may it never be. Wait, all the people five seconds ago were all in agreement. Kill them. Get them out of here. And now they've completely changed their tune. Wait, hold on. God forbid, may that never be. Here's what we need to know. That word that we heard, heard in there, when they heard this, that word heard doesn't mean to hear. It means to understand or to comprehend. In other words, as Jesus got to this final closing point of the story, they went, oh, you're talking about us. The religious leaders especially would have instantly realized, oh, we're the tenants. We're the, the Jewish people, the tenants. We, we are, God sent his servants, the, the prophets. We abused them. We killed them. We didn't listen to them. Wait, God, don't take our land from us. Don't, don't take our covenant promise with you away. Don't give it to someone else. They panicked. They began to freak out like this is not a good thing. May that never be. God forbid that would ever happen. See, God had given Israel every chance to succeed. He, he had gotten nothing back. <laughs> From them in return, time and time again, God had given them a chance after chance after chance, and they just blew it, and they rejected God. And at just the right time, he sent the prophets with his word to speak, to teach, and to rebuke his people, and they refused to listen. They made fun of them. They ignored them. They, yes, even killed the prophets, yet God was patient with them all the way up to where we're at right here in this moment where Jesus, his own son, has now been sent. In this, one of the final teachings of Jesus, maybe later on that same day, Matthew chapter 23 records it, Jesus goes hardcore after these religious leaders, the Pharisees and teachers of the law. He just lays it out for them. You can read that later in Matthew 23 if you want to. He just lays into those responsible for leading the people astray, supposedly in the name of God. But now now God has sent his very own son to his people. And if you heard how Jesus described this in the parable, the tenants recognized the son. Did you notice that? The tenants recognized the son immediately, who he was. Wait a minute. Hold on. Is Jesus telling us that these religious leaders, teachers, and elders knew who he was? 
that he actually was God's son? And the answer to that question is, uh, yeah. Yeah, we always like, well, they just didn't know. Oh, no, 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 they, they did. They absolutely knew, just like this parable says. This is truth. They knew who Jesus was claiming to be and that it was probably true. They knew that he was able to completely back it up. They witnessed his supernatural power. He demonstrated power over disease, over demons, even over death. And the only way to explain that was his power was from God. John actually records for us in chapter 12, verse 42, that many of these rulers actually did believe in secret because they were afraid of the Pharisees. The proof was there. They admitted he spoke truth. They know they couldn't trip him up. His answers, daggone it, were always right. Their response, then we must kill him <laughs> because we're not always right. He can't always be right. That's not fair. Can you believe that literally in the parable that he just told them, he just told them exactly what they are going to do to him. He just told them that exact thing. And how do they respond? <laughs> By immediately plotting to kill him. They wanted to do it right then. You guys are going to kill me. I'm the heir. You know that. And you want control. You want to rule the religious system. You want power over the people. I know what you're doing. And so after all of this, and you could, I, I just don't think Jesus just continued on. I think he paused and he let people just kind of mutter amongst themselves and even get worked up if necessary. And then he interrupts them, looks at them straight in the eye and asks them, what then is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he would have paused. Because those Jewish leaders especially would have known immediately what he was talking about, a messianic psalm from Psalm 118.22, from their great King David. Those who were in charge were rejecting the Messiah. And then they led many people down that path away from God. They rejected God's own son. But what they don't realize is that prophetic psalm from so many years ago that that Messiah, this Jesus, is going to become the foundation upon which all of our faith is based. Paul records it in Ephesians 2, 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also member of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself. As the cornerstone in him, the whole building is joined together and rises up to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Jesus, Jesus is the cornerstone. And church, this is who we're to be built up in his spirit with Jesus as our cornerstone. We cannot fall into the same trap that the Jews did. We cannot make Jesus into who we want him to be. We have to follow his ways. We have to obey his teachings. We have no other choice. We have to be true to his standards. We can't be bending them and breaking them and changing them, nor should we want to. He is to be our God, and we are to be his people. We answer to him, not to man. So Jesus continues, verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone, Jesus, will be broken into pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Here Jesus is referring all the way back to their great prophet Isaiah. Again, the religious leaders would have known this text absolutely as a messianic text. He will be a holy place 
for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken and they will be snared and captured. For those in charge listening to Jesus in this moment, having heard that parable, having heard his response about authority, having heard these messianic prophecies that he's now proclaiming to be him, that's too far. Verse 19, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew what he had spoken was against them. But they were afraid of the people. You see, they wanted to end it right now. They, their heads were literally about to explode in this moment. But they couldn't do it because they were afraid of the people, at least not yet. So in a couple days, as, as many of you might know, these same leaders will head out under the darkness of night to secretly hide their evil plan. Now for us today, we've designated this, this day to be a ready-to-grow Sunday. This is going to be a theme you're going to hear a lot about in the coming months and who knows, maybe even years. Are we ready to grow? I've talked to you before, when you come to gather on a Sunday morning, how do you come into this place do you just come in and just like, okay, I'm here, great? Or do you come in here ready, ready to grow, ready for the Spirit to speak to you, ready for God to literally change you in the moments that we're together? Do you enter into your prayer time each day in that same Spirit? Do you enter into your study time in God's Word each day in that same Spirit? God, I'm not just reading today. I'm reading today so that you can change me, make me different. So on this Ready to Grow Sunday, the first and most important thing that we could ever remind people is this, anyone that does not know the love of God yet, anyone that's not invited to make Jesus their king, anyone that has not brought their sins and mistakes before him to be forgiven, we want to invite you to do that right now. If this is the first time you've ever heard the name of Jesus before, it doesn't matter. He's been waiting your whole life for this moment. And this may be how God is challenging you to grow this Sunday, the first step. You see, you, you can't get down the path without taking the first step. Don't wait any longer to begin that part of the growth. For the rest of us, this is ready to grow Sunday as a church. We sent that letter out a few weeks ago. That was from our heart as a leadership. We carefully read over that many, many times to make sure that was what was expressed, was the heart of God through us. And so we pray that you've taken time to consider what all was in that letter. If you didn't get one of those letters to your visitors, somehow you're not on the mailing list yet, there's a stack of them on that black table right outside. Please take one as you leave. We ask you to consider how God is calling you to respond. God never asks any of us to do nothing. Never. It's not why you're still here. If you're still alive, he has something for you, some way for you to serve. In that letter, we outlined some incredible things that God has been doing in our midst. God is at work. It is an incredible opportunity that we have before us. After our four discovering meetings, I said we met with, with between 80 and 90 people over the course of the summer just to hear what God has placed in your heart for this church and for this community. And we have those lists and we're going to compile those and we're going to bring those before you as we talk about the heart of God this summer because the heart of God is expressed through his people on this earth. And then last week, we, we got to meet with the administration of Forest Park, and we were given a whole other opportunity, open doors just across the way, just across 59 on the other side, 
and this desire to reach out and do incredible things for God's kingdom. He's given us this vineyard, folks, to tend. He's prepared it. He's given us all the tools we need. He's got everything right here ready for us. He's blessed us in so many different ways. How are we caring for his vineyard? How are we working to ensure that it will produce the healthiest, most abundant crops possible? I truly believe as leadership that that God is just checking in on us right now. He's given us all of these resources and all of these tools, and he's saying, hey, how's it going? He's given us the ideas. We don't have to come up with a single thought or idea, not one. He's given us more than we could ever accomplish by ourselves. We need everybody, everybody to be a part of this family, to join together in this move forward. This Sunday is very specific. This Sunday is is our prayer that that God is going to provide our financial path for this fall season. You know, if, if you well, it was in the letter as well. This summer was difficult at some times. You know what? God was faithful, and he provided through those moments. In the following weeks, God is going to be challenging all of us to pray in a different way. He's going to be calling us to love in a different way. He's going to be calling us to serve in ways that maybe you never thought you would be comfortable serving. So what we're asking is for you to keep your heart available and your mind open and your spirit ready to respond as we pursue this heart of God together. This is only the beginning. We're going to be asking this question a lot. Are you, are we ready to grow in so many different ways? Father God, your word is so powerful. Father, so powerful that as you spoke it, the people listening were cut to the heart in every direction. Whether it be in a moment like that where they were cut to the heart with anger and animosity towards you because they knew what you were speaking was the truth and they could not tolerate the truth. Father, we live in a world that is becoming very much like that. That when we boldly stand for your truth, people will try to cut us down as well. But Father, we know the truth, and we know the truth will be the only thing that sets them free. So we must speak it, but we must speak it with grace. We must speak it with love. We must speak it in a way that they are able to receive it. So many times we're just confrontational, and that's not what you call us to be. These confrontations come from a very specific time for a very specific group of people who are literally trying to kill Jesus in that moment. He must respond in a way that they can understand, and they do. Father, there are people here today, if there's someone watching online today that doesn't know you, you are that gardener. You have waited. You are waiting for that vineyard to produce crops. You are patient with us. You you don't want to come in and destroy us, even though that's what we genuinely deserve. That's exactly how you feel about them. You look up in that tree like Zacchaeus last week and you love them right where they're at right now. You look at that rich young ruler like the week before and you looked at him and loved him even knowing that he was going to reject you in that moment. Father, you look at us today wherever we're hiding, however we're running, and you look at us and you love us anyway. So if nobody's ever turned to respond to that love, then let today be the day. Father, for the rest of us, I pray that we have really genuinely considered how you want each of us to respond to the need 
the genuine need that we have here at the church moving forward into fall. We want and know you will provide for what we need. And we thank you in advance. And we look forward to the opportunities that you have risen out among us. We cannot wait to begin presenting them to your people. And we cannot wait for you to move their hearts to respond. So many have sat still for so long, whether it was COVID or whatever has paralyzed us. It's time to move forward and advance the kingdom in this community, and we cannot wait to see how you move. Father, we love you.